Welcome to a special episode of Dr. Doctor, the podcast today featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, with a special Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is a halo of light. So together, let's find the silver linings we can in this pandemic. On Dr. Doctor, we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. While normally heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Today's episode has two guests, Dr. Greg Burke. He's an internist, chief patient experience officer at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania, among other things, and Sister Mary Diana Drager, MD, a Nashville Dominican sister and internal medicine physician. Both are very active members of the Catholic Medical Association and are members of the CMA Ethics Committee, which Greg co-chairs. Sister Greg, welcome back, both of you, to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. On Friday, the CMA Ethics Committee released a document called Guiding Principles for Catholic Healthcare Professionals During a Pandemic. What led to the development of this document? That's a great question, Tom. I think the pandemic itself is what called us to this, this, this statement. You know, we know that a number of national uh, medical uh, authorities, different agencies have been making particular statements, and we thought it was critical that a Catholic voice, a Catholic voice in healthcare, be part of that conversation. And we thought we had a lot to offer, and that time was of the essence because critical ethical decisions, spiritual guidance we're, we're so much at the front of this pandemic that that our our medical association our catholic medical association needed to speak uh, maybe sister could can chime in as well right and actually we had a regularly scheduled cma ethics committee meeting just about two weeks ago now and while this was part of our agenda that evening and certainly took up a pretty good part of that agenda at the time we weren't exactly planning a formal statement but right about that same time, suddenly there were multiple threads of emails going on with various CMA members really asking for some direction and some leadership from the Central Catholic Medical Association. And so Greg and I ended up exchanging some emails and really that, that spurred on this, these, these guiding principles. And, and as um, Greg, Greg knows, we were being asked perhaps some very specific questions, but we realized that it was really important for us to get sort of a broad strokes general picture out there for people because it's not possible for us to solve every ethical issue that is out there because our situations are so different in terms of places where we're working and what our practices look like. Was there something that happened in the, in the broader medical community, either in the country or in the world, that you said, wow, ethically, this isn't quite right, and therefore we need to do it? Or is just more preemptive, not that you've seen anything that's been contrary to Catholic ethics? I think there were actually a couple of things on, on both sides. One was that the word rationing started being used with respect to ventilators and perhaps other, other medical services as well. And that was getting the attention of many of our Catholic Medical Association members and and they were being put in situations where they, they just weren't really sure how to deal with those things. Um, but I think it was more than that. There was also um, things that we were thinking of in the future. So for example, I know a case that I had brought up is with elderly parents. If I know that in fact they're not gonna do well in a hospitalized situation and not gonna do well with the no visitor requirements at the hospital these days, is there a way that I could hope that they could actually get good care at home? And, and we don't know that right now. I think it's, we're just really very early in this process. Greg, anything to add? Sure, you know, I, I saw it from a unique point of view. I work at a tertiary hospital, and I knew that at our facility we had a patient on ECMO, uh, sort of a cardiac bypass for severe lung disease, you know, a COVID patient. And, uh, and then I heard of some other cases, and. So I started to think about, you know, what would happen if we continue to see more of these critically ill patients. Uh, those, and the word out there was rationing. And, and that, in fact, I think my own hospital system was mentioned in a national news article about that, that issue. And I said, we better, as Catholics, 
address this, recognizing we had both an ethical um, tradition that, that is very helpful, but also, also as uh, Catholic physicians dedicated to medical science and good evidence-based medicine, and that, that, that we had a voice that we should add to that conversation. And I'm so glad you did. I was actually thrilled when I saw this document yesterday. It was well done. That's why I tried to arrange this interview right away. And by yesterday, that would be uh, Friday, uh, March 27th is when this was uh, released. In the preamble to the document, uh, you state that, quote, the Catholic Christian physician has a special calling different from the secular world. How is that calling different? That's the next. Go ahead, sister. Yeah, I would say that that question really gets at what we might call a Catholic or a Christian worldview. That is, that as Catholics and as Christians, we look at the world differently because we know that, in fact, there is something beyond this world. And it's not simply that we're looking beyond this world, but we also look at what is in this world differently, and most especially that we have a different view of the human person. So we recognize the human person as an individual, irrepeatable person made in the image and likeness of God who has that eternal destiny. And so that gives us a different picture as to how we see all of what happens here, and including sickness and death. Greg, how do you think the calling of the Catholic physician mm -hmm. might be different than other physicians? Yeah, and I think I really want to compliment Sister on her answer. I think that really summarizes it in a very special way. And I think to emphasize the Catholic vision is not only to look at um, sort of the vision of the human person as having inherent uh, inestimable worth, but also she mentioned being made in the image of God, that there is a theological vision we bring to the conversation uh, that I think is somewhat universal, certainly universal um, in terms of the dignity of the human person, but as, as Sister alluded to, also putting our priorities straight uh, in this crisis. And, and, and that, I think, it really is the Catholic guiding vision that makes us different uh, in, these, in, these, in these troubled times. There, there is a tendency to look at things in a utilitarian way, you know, the best for the most, yes. but it'd be our, our Catholic vision that keeps bringing us back to, wait a minute, this human person has an eternal destiny, has infinite value in God's eyes, and there is, in fact, a God that really is, is in charge of all of this. In the document, you affirm something that most physicians would agree with by saying, uh, by believing in evidence-based clinical care and public health measures, but you ask for more. What more do you ask for? Well, I think we're going to learn a lot as this is, as this is uh, developing. There's constantly new information coming out about uh, the symptoms of the virus, the best treatments of the virus, epidemiology and prevention. I think as evidence-based clinicians, and the Catholic Medical Association clearly endorses the scientific method as valid, we need to be open to that and then respond, informed by faith and good ethics, to all that new information. Sister, and I think that's a key piece of it, is that, that we have a medical ethics that is really based on a strong social teaching of the church that understands, uh, understands uh, relationships, relationships of people and not simply the human person as an, as an individual. And that, that understanding of those relationships mm -hmm. is so key in understanding society and the decisions that we make in a situation like this that involves the entire world. So we really can't separate uh, evidence-based medicine from uh, medical ethics and the dignity of the human person. No, I would say that they actually go together beautifully well, because if we have a deep respect for the dignity of the human person, evidence-based medicine helps us to understand at least the bodily part of that human person. And so they really, they're, they're very integrated. Beautiful. And that's a great segue into the next question. The document addresses the four key principles of Catholic social teaching, the dignity of human life, subsidiarity, solidarity, and the common good. Sister, can you give a practical nutshell description of what each of those means? Sure. So a really brief course right here in Catholic social doctrine. <laughs> Um, so the first one, I always like to point out that it's not simply the dignity of the human person, but the first principle and the, and the basic principle on which everything else is based in Catholic social doctrine is 
respect for the dignity of the human person or respect for the human person, that we respect that person because of his dignity. And again, that dignity being made in the image of God. In Latin, we say imago dei. And if we recognize the other human person as made in the image of God, it brings an entirely different light to the work that we do, whether it's in the ICU or the primary care office or, or home care for a patient. And all of the other three principles, three other core principles are based on this respect for the dignity of the human person. Uh, the second one uh, we talk about is subsidiarity. Subsidiarity comes from the word subsidium, which means help or support. We might think in English of the word subsidy, uh, something that's going to help somebody else. And subsidiarity recognizes that we're not just individuals, but that we are in society and that there are various levels of society. So there are families, there are neighborhoods, towns, cities, countries, state, nation, and ultimately the world. And that the idea is that there has to be respect amongst these various levels of society, and particularly that the higher levels of society exist to actually help support the lower levels if needed. And that, that kind of relationship is really key. Again, it highlights the course teaching in Catholic social doctrine that society exists for the good of the person and not the reverse. And so it's the same with higher and lower orders of society. And so we, we work together in, I like to think of subsidiarity as the sort of vertical arm of Catholic social doctrine. Now, sister, one thing mm -hmm. that I think going on now that might be an example of subsidiarity, unlike other countries, we don't have a national shelter-in-place rule, but the federal government is allowing the state governments to determine the needs of their states so they can come up with their own shelter-in-place rules. Would that be one practical example currently? Yes, it would be. That, that definitely we're looking at things on a, a local level in many ways, I think, in this, in this pandemic. I mean, here, here in Tennessee, we had a uh, shelter-in-place or what, we, what was called safer-at-home <laughs> order that went on specifically for the city of Nashville or the, the county, Davidson County, without it necessarily being the rest of the state. And so the idea behind that is that the local levels ought to have a better view as to what's, what's needed at that level. Um, but sometimes higher levels do have to step in, in order for those lower levels to, to get the help that they need. And then we move on to the third principle. Right. So the third principle is solidarity. And I like to think of this as the horizontal arm. So this one, I like to, maybe a good summary of it is to say we're in this together, <laughs> that your good is my good. And so it really highlights the intrinsic social nature of the human person, especially with respect to um, equality in our dignity and therefore in our rights. I love the way the compendium of the Catholic social doctrine talks about this as that our communities are to be based on the commandment of mutual love. That is Jesus's command to love one another as I have loved you. And so that's what we have in solidarity is that my care for a patient, uh, my care for a colleague in the healthcare world has to be a type of a love that Jesus would have for that person. And that is a really big calling. And finally, Finally, number four, the fourth principle is the principle of the common good. And this one could be really misunderstood. I think lots of people may think about the common good as being sort of a lowest common denominator in society or just what's good for society as a whole. But that's not the way the church has talked about this. She actually defined the common good clearly in one of the Vatican II documents. And the definition was given as, the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as individuals or groups, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. So in talking about the sum total here, it's not just sort of some aggregate of things. Again, it's not the greatest possible good for the greatest number. That's a completely different way. But rather that we're looking for the social conditions to be such that every individual within that society is able to reach their fulfillment. Um, some, one author I saw referred to this as a kind of ordered totality. That is the parts working together 
for a common goal. And ultimately that common goal for every individual is in fact heaven. And so again, we come back to that Catholic or Christian worldview of realizing that we're not made just for this world. It's something bigger. And that's what our societies really are to be ordered toward. Thank you for that wonderful tutorial, sister. Greg, how do you hope this document is used and who do you hope uses it? I think everybody can benefit from the document. It's certainly geared initially towards our own Catholic Medical Association, but I think all healthcare workers will benefit from it. You know, as I was thinking about my, my day today, and I read the document earlier, and it inspired me as I faced a whole host of different challenges at different levels. And I think I'm thinking of Sister's excellent description of, of our social teaching. So I started the day wondering about one of my patients who's in the hospital now, very ill with COVID, an elderly patient I've taken care of for, for many years and have a very, very close relationship. That's a very unique one-on-one -on -one relationship. Then I thought of my other position, which is looking at a role I, I, I have in, in working with multiple nursing homes in our region. I think up, upwards of 1,700 patients that I have some form of responsibility for. So I started thinking in different ways about that population. How could we get protective gear to our nurses? How do we deal with uh, accepting patients who are COVID positive into a nursing home, recognizing there's a vulnerable population there. So that's a different way of applying uh, the same principles of social justice. And the document was helpful in that way to me. But there's also spiritual aspects of the document. Uh, later in the document, talking about pastoral care and, and the meaning of, you know, uh, our existence and, and the centrality of Jesus Christ. That is the highest level of inspiration to do this work. So I think the document is good for everybody. I certainly hope it inspires our Catholic and Christian physicians, but nurses, hospital administrators, frontline folks, and everybody, every Catholic, I think, can value from this. I think every human person can find something of value in this document. Yes, and I would add hospital chaplains, sure. um, pastors. Uh, I think it's, it's important for everybody. And as Greg was saying there, it just, I think, helping us to remember that we're all called at some point to the end of our lives. And, and thinking about this is it, perhaps an opportunity that we're being given at this moment in history. And we will post um, a link to this document with the podcast so that listeners can view it in its totality. Now, the, the document had lists 12 principles, but I understand, Greg, that initially you lobbied for the less is more approach of four principles. What did that look like? Sure. And I, I think it just is a, a mark of my simple way of thinking, trying to put things into big <laughs> categories. Um, the first thing I, I, I thought of was that, that really Catholics in particular have a moral duty to cooperate with public health and public health authorities and the government to reduce the impact of the pandemic. I think that is a fundamental principle. And that could involve very personal things like avoiding hoarding. Uh, there's a temptation for all of us to want to keep our supplies completely full in a, in a crisis situation. But when every time I'm taking more than I need, I'm taking it from someone else. Yes. I, I thought about our social distancing practices and guidelines, which can be very difficult for families, but recognizing I may be protecting my neighbor by doing so. Other acts of charity, uh, reaching out to the homebound, uh, taking groceries to a neighbor, making a phone call to the lonely, that this this sort of social contract or compact is probably a better term compact that we have um, as Catholics uh, cannot be forgotten. And we have, I think, again, a moral obligation, a moral imperative to follow that. So that was the first point I, th I thought our document would make. And I think it did very well. Uh, the second was, again, and this, I think, emphasizes what Sister said, recognizing the inherent dignity and worth of every human being and that Catholic healthcare workers in particular should use good prudential judgment based on good science, and that science may involve physiology. We can look at uh, data on organ survival, survival data, uh, data in, in illness, and, and, and help use that information as scientists, as physicians, to guide us in clinical decisions. However, you know, we know that, that this can be um, wrongly understood. We, we know that the elderly, for instance, or those with physical disabilities have greater comorbidities and may not benefit as much from therapies. However, we would never use age or physical disability, gender, creed, ethnicity, anything like that to make those decisions. 
we have to make it on good science informed by uh, faith. The third point was that the church, I think, in this crisis has a supreme duty of providing spiritual comfort and sacramental grace to everyone who needs it. Now, there are limits, and we understand that, but the church in every direction that it can, whether it's social media, direct contact, official teaching, really is there to guide us spiritually through this in a, in a very profound way, in a new way, maybe in a very innovative way, why we still recognize the church's need to maintain fundamental doctrinal and pastoral practice. And finally, just in case there was any temptation to do otherwise, to roundly condemn euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide as ever an answer to a pandemic or crisis like this. So those were the four points that I thought we would hopefully take away you know, from this, this document. Excellent. Um, well, let's go through some of the points uh, that you made. And the first one is basically the first thing you just mentioned, an obligation to support proper authorities. I mean, even in, in Romans chapter 13, Paul said, let every person be subject to the governing authority because there's no authority except from God and those instituted by God. So what, what does it mean, sister, for us as Catholics to support the proper authorities in this pandemic? Right. So the, our, again, going back to our Catholic social doctrine, we do understand that legitimate authority is, is legitimate and authority that is trying to work for the good of society, the good of individuals is, is something that we ought to respect. In fact, we think about this even when we do an examination of conscience with respect to the Ten Commandments. When we get to number four, which says that we are to honor our mother and father, we really understand that to mean not just our mother and father, but any of those who are in authority over us in some way, that we ought to respect their position and recognize that they are trying to do what is for the good of all. And obviously in the United States, we have a democratic thought of that because in fact, we typically elect our officials. And so we hope that we are electing officials that we believe can have that good in mind. And so when certain things are put into place, whether it's rules about uh, stay at home or safer at home orders, um, certain businesses having to close, you know, those things are being put in place for the good of all. And so they, we are really to respect those and to recognize the, the good that is trying to be achieved. And even when they are difficult for us, we, we need to do those things. Your, the second point addresses that R word that you both mentioned hearing, rationing. So it applies to allocation of potentially scarce resources. So how should we approach the conundrum that may arise and is arising related to personal protective equipment, ventilators, and medicines. Now that's a tough one, uh, but I think it requires a couple of things. One is the virtue of prudence uh, to, you know, to balance the, the needs of all in a prudential way. I think part of it goes back to that fundamental point I made about hoarding and, 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 and right order that uh, those who, you know, there's a, a natural tendency to be self-protective in, in a crisis, but to recognize that we have to share goods appropriately. And that could be medical equipment. It means not being wasteful. Uh, and it means using equipment such as a ventilator in the right ethical way, um, you know, with the best intentions of the patient that you're caring for in mind based on good, you know, good science. So it's, it, it really is, and I, I think, a chance for great um, recognition of charity and cooperation. And we've seen examples of that throughout the country of, of uh, companies now making masks that, that that's not their usual mode of business, but they're making masks as an act of charity, um, changing, you know, our priorities. But to me, it means, you know, really doing things, you know, with the other in mind that this can never be a time for selfishness. Um, yes, we all have a desire, whether it's a society, a county, a state, um, anybody and any individual person or family to, to preserve one's life and safety. And I think that's understandable, but we can never do it in a vacuum. We have to see our interconnection that we're not a bunch of eyes that we really are. a we, we are, you know, uh, we, we cannot survive uh, spiritually, theologically, physically without another. Uh, so this is a time to really recognize that as we make decisions. And I would add that I think we have to realize that this pandemic can reach a level at which it's almost like a wartime situation. 
And mm. so we don't have our usual resources and we have to rely on basically the best that we can do. You know, I had somebody just ask me yesterday, so what's the difference between this and just, you know, the flu coming on in a particular year and a, a year that the flu might be bad? And I said, the key thing is the number of people who are getting sick all at the same time and their level of acuity, that it gets to the point where it simply apparently overburdens the medical system and really paralyzes it. I think that's what we've seen from the experience in Italy. And, and the Italian physicians and healthcare workers are, are trying to get the rest of the world to realize how bad this can get and how we have to think about these things differently. And so one of the words that has come up is the idea, perhaps not so much rationing, but the word triage, which is a word that we use associated in, with wartime casualties. And it basically means, it comes from a French word meaning to sort. So what you're sorting are like who are the people that we think we really can address their needs and who perhaps we don't really have the ability to address their needs, not because they are any less valuable as a human person, but again, going back to one of the first things we talked about, and that was evidence-based medicine. We know that certain interventions will work better in certain situations. And so trying to match those interventions to those situations, to those persons who can actually benefit from them. This is really important. You know, we have the idea from television. I, I saw a paper that was done once that showed how often is CPR successful on television compared to how often is CPR <laughs> successful yes. in real life. And, and the world doesn't really understand that. Um, but we as physicians do, and so we need to think about those things. Give really our listeners the punchline, system there, <laughs> sister. They all want to know how often. Right. The right. punchline is that in, on, right in, so, well, it depends on whether you're in the hospital, whether you're in the OR, mm -hmm. or whether you're just out in the world. But out in the world, CPR saves very few lives. Now, is it, it 10% does, or less? It's, it's, I think it's even less than that, Right. And yet on TV, it's like 80 to 90% of people survive to get up and walk on and have a normal life. And that's just not real. <laughs> no. And so it's we a, as physicians a, really yeah. have to be able to explain it to people. But on, a, on something really simple too, right? On the personal protective equipment. Initially, I think just a couple of weeks ago, we weren't really sure how much protection we needed. And we were thinking perhaps everybody needs the hazmat suits and the shields and the goggles and the N95 respirators, and we're all going to have to walk around like this. But we now have better evidence that perhaps in most settings, like in, in, for, for patients who are being taken care of at home, that probably masks and hand washing are actually going to do fine for people. And so... So those, that's even evidence-based medicine on a very simple level, and, and we have to really apply those. And the same thing with medications that are being used. So medications, we don't have any direct medications to deal with this right now. There are a number that are in the pipeline that people are looking at, but, but we have to think about how we're using those. Um, so, Sister, back to the masks. What's your current understanding of the use of masks by the public? Right. So... There isn't a, I don't think we have an actual uh, explanation of the, the use of the mask in public. However, I think one of the pieces that we have from um, some directions is an understanding of, of what it means to be a close contact of somebody who has been actually diagnosed with COVID. And it seems that close contact means at least 15, perhaps 30 minutes within the six feet range without wearing a mask. And that identifies you probably as a close contact. So therefore, if you know of somebody that you were in contact with in that kind of setting for that number of minutes without any protection and you were closer than six feet, then and that person is diagnosed with COVID-19, then you yourself really are obligated for self-quarantine. Um, in days. order to yeah. look for symptoms and that this kind of really targeting close contact is probably going to help us more with getting a handle on this than just sort of the general idea of, well, okay, I won't go to the store too much or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I in terms of masks, well, I guess it can decrease your number of close contacts. I mean, we can extrapolate that, but we don't have any hard evidence on that. Right. Yeah. Now. 
and, and here's another way also to look at it. It's been in, in discussion with my infectious disease specialist. It's probably much more important to mask the patient yes. on presentation than for the caregiver to have a mask. Yes. And so sometimes there's that misunderstanding. I know we'll see photos of hundreds of people walking the streets with masks on, which probably does very little uh, to reduce the spread. But actually getting a mask on the patient as soon as you suspect disease is of critical importance. And I, just on a kind of interesting note, a sister had mentioned about CPR on TV and, and, and in the real world. And it, it struck me last night, my daughter Patricia told me, I've just watched Grey's Anatomy <laughs> and I have a feeling that it's not all true. <laughs> uh, that these surgeries don't exist. And she was talking about the medical side, not all the love romances. She was talking particularly about the surgeries and medical says, I have a feeling that's not the way it really happens. And I said, you're right, honey, that is really not. <laughs> so uh, we have to separate from false, uh, you know, media visions of what healthcare is and what we really see in the trenches. You refer in point number seven of the document to the right that patients have to prepare for death with spiritual support. What are some of the challenges for a COVID patient who's hospitalized to prepare possibly for death? And what creative ways are being used to help that patient? So that's a really good question. And I think for those of us who are Catholics, this has been one of the great tragedies of of this pandemic. So obviously, one of the very first barriers to getting spiritual support is that if a person ends up so sick with ARDS on a ventilator and, and can't communicate in any way, you know, how, how can that person prepare, in fact, in fact for death? And, uh, but, but if we even take a patient before they get to that point, what we have in the hospitals right now in place are the no visitor policies. And this, right. is, this is understood. I mean, this, this is not a bad decision. Again, the lessons that we're getting from the healthcare professionals in Italy is that they're talking about the fact that their hospitals are now so contaminated that anybody coming into the hospital is going to get COVID. And so it's understandable that we have these no visitor policies in place, but it creates an added sadness or sorrow in addition to you being sick you're now you're now in solitude um, i i kind of think of it like solitary confinement and it's it's a very sad situation it's even sad for the healthcare workers i've heard this from i heard this from a doctor a catholic doctor here in town i heard it from a catholic nurse here in town who said it's it's terrible to work on the covid units because they are dressed up in from head to foot in protective uh, personal protective equipment and you walk in and at the the very time that a patient needs to have contact with another human person they can't have it at least not not in a real way now there are virtual ways so thankfully we have telephones and perhaps facetime but really when patients get so sick it's really even hard to think about how they can access those those types of things. So that's the first real barrier to uh, the spiritual care. Um, that's a great, and so it, great point. And our yeah, sister, it, sister, are yeah. priests being allowed into the hospitals around you if a patient wants their support or the sacraments? So in general, no, that's oh. not allowed. Uh, be, um, at least that's my understanding. And it's it's because of the concern now, I, I tried looking this up, actually. I just did a Google today to try to see, like, what's happening, even not just in Catholic hospital systems, but other hospital systems as well. And what they're talking about is that even hospital chaplains not being allowed to go visit these patients in their rooms. And so at least hospital chaplains trying to, again, reach out by phone call to people and how appreciated that is by those patients who are able to take a phone call. So this is a really sad yeah. situation. And, and I think that it, it is, it's, it's clearly a place for us to start being all of us, all of us Catholics, being proactive in how we think about how we prepare for the last moments of our, of our life. None of us actually knows when that's going to happen. I mean, I could die in a car accident today instead of dying from COVID two weeks from now. And so my life should be lived in such a way that I'm always ready and always prepared to meet the Lord. But perhaps this time is calling all of us as Catholics to really think about that in a much more intentional way. 
I think one of the most beautiful thing is that the church has really opened up its treasury of mercy to us in the new uh, notes and proclamations that came out just about a week ago from the apostolic penitentiary uh, on the sacrament of reconciliation and on, on certain indulgences. Um, and one of the most beautiful things is a quote from that document I just mentioned, where the church tells us very clearly, and this actually comes from the catechism of the Catholic church, where the individual faithful find themselves in the painful impossibility of receiving sacramental absolution. It should be remembered that perfect contrition coming from the love of God, beloved above all things, expressed by a sincere request for forgiveness, that which the penitent is at present able to express, and accompanied by the firm resolution to have recourse as soon as possible to sacramental confession. Key part, obtains forgiveness of sins, even mortal ones. So the church in her great mercy is reminding us is that when it is actually impossible for us to get to the sacrament of reconciliation, to be able to receive sacramental absolution, it is within our own power in the best way that we can to say to God, whom we know loves us, that we are truly sorry and that if we have the opportunity to get confession, that we're going to confess these things. But at least for right now, this is the best that we can do. And the church recognizes that. That's not something that's going to be held against us. And I think we should all think about this. I actually said this to my parents the other day. My parents are 84 and 90 years old. And so we have them quarantined in their house. And I said this to them, I said, remember, you know, mom and dad, every night, a good act of contrition. And dad said, I do that every night anyway. Well, good. This is what we should all be doing because we don't know when the moment is going to come. You know, that really was brought home to me uh, watching the movie El Cid, believe it or not. And while somebody has just been mortally stabbed, they, they, they yell out for a priest, confess me, confess me. And I talk to my kids, well, kids. As long as you're sorry, not just because you fear hell, but also because you love God and haven't lived up to that love, then you are forgiven if you have that intention to go to confession when you have a chance, like you just said, sister. I think mm-hmm. that is such a key point of mercy. And I think we need to be teaching this to our Catholic faithful because I don't think they know it. And again, none of us knows when we're going to be in that situation. And uh, it's so important to, to know that now. That's very interesting, too. I think we've talked about the church uh, trying to be innovative in this moment. We've seen that with social media and, the, and having online masses and so on. I think around these key sacramental moments of the ill, there, there, there's some struggle. If you've watched the news, uh, initially a, a diocese in Massachusetts was going to allow nurses to apply sacramental oil in anointing of the sick in place of the priest who would be nearby, you know, outside of the room for safety reasons. And recently that's been rescinded. Um, There's been talk about priests hearing confessions outside the room using cell phones, also something that's been uh, not recommended. But I love the fact that we're we're so concerned about our our sacramental system, which really is incarnational in nature, that the church is having these discussions. I think it's one of the beauties of Catholicism that we are right there in the moments of of death, of, uh, of, you know, we're really, we're, we get into the real grit of the world. We are made from dust and to dust we shall return. This is a wonderful time to be reminded of our Catholic identity and the importance of the sacraments. They are spiritual realities and they have real substance. So I think it's an interesting time. I'm sure we'll learn from this uh, how sacraments can be dispensed. And I think the sister's description of, of perfect contrition in that moment of, yes. of desolation when you have no uh, uh, sacramental presence of a priest Uh, is beautiful. And this is what makes me so proud of the church. In point number eight, you refer to developing ways that patients can be taken care of in their homes with their loved ones near them. They they don't want to be isolated. And you mentioned something about this before. Are you aware of any efforts being made or any people consciously choosing not to be admitted because of the no visitor policies? That's a an interesting question. I think I may have mentioned this to you in our, our last uh, conversation, Tom, but I've had at least two patients 
yes. move themselves from the nursing home because yes. of the no visitor policy. Um, it's also interesting as I think about the question, uh, you know, my work, I mentioned I work with a large system of nursing homes giving some advice and providing clinical care through our health system. Uh, one of our medical directors said, hey, I can't handle uh, taking in COVID patients to my facility. I don't feel prepared. Our staffing is short. We don't have enough protective gear. And he made an interesting comment. He said, this is the time for families to learn uh, in a heroic way, but maybe in maybe even less than heroic ways of their responsibility to bring family home with them and care for them if they're COVID positive. So, you know, how we deal with post-acute care, home care, I don't know that we have the resources or the bandwidth yet. Other than families themselves, it's going to be, you know, daughters and sons and grandchildren and aunts and uncles who may be called upon at this very special moment to show that level of love. Um, so I don't know how that will play out, but, but time will tell. Uh, your 11th point strongly encourages Catholic clinicians and leaders to engage in formulating practices and guidelines for the management of patients during this pandemic. And I must tell you, I've interviewed Paul Carson in North Dakota, who's doing that. Paul Cieslak in Oregon, who's doing that. Eustace Fernandez, who is chief of critical care and on the ethics committee at his hospital, who are doing that. Are you aware of other Catholics who are doing this around the country? I don't know that we know of specific other ones, but I think the point of this really was coming from Catholics who were asking us sort of, what do we do? And part of the what do we do is we, we be Catholics in, in our settings where we are. And so remembering that we are asked to bring all of our gifts, not just our medical gifts to the medical practice, but the fact that we are Catholics and that if we're concerned about how these decisions are to be made, then we should put ourselves there in those places where these decisions are being made so we can contribute. It doesn't mean that you have to have a degree in ethics or a degree in theology to be there. It would help if you have an openness to the prayer and to the Holy Spirit who can help enlighten you in some of these situations. But, but getting involved, I think, is so important. Sometimes what we, mm. we see is members of the CMA perhaps saying, you know, just give me the rule book. Tell me what I have to do in all these different situations. <laughs> and the truth is, there is no rule book. That's why we have, as, as Greg has been pointing out, the mm. virtue of prudence, that we have to make prudent judgments. That's what our conscience is about. Conscience is not about give me all the rules and then I'm just going to apply them exactly the way they fit each case. Conscience is, a, is an individual judgment that we make about what should or shouldn't be done. And, and we are given gifts to be able to do that. And we do it in the best way that we can. Sometimes we go back and look at a decision. We go, oh, that really probably wasn't the best. But maybe it was the best I did at the time. And, and the Lord understands that. Greg, you, you're in that position yeah. to have some influence, aren't you? Sure. You know, I'm reminded of the, the spirituality of Opus Dei, and I'm not a member of Opus Dei. But as I understood it, uh, their, their founder talked about uh, taking um, your Catholic witness into the world, in the intellectual world, to management, to leadership positions, almost in a silent fashion. You didn't wear it on your sleeve, more or less, to say, well, I'm a Catholic doctor, this is what I think but that just your, your competency in that role in the secular world, animated by faith, animated by your Catholic faith, can make a great difference. You'll motivate, inspire people, guide principles, guide practices, influenced by the gospel in a silent way. And I'm sure that many of our CMA members are doing that today, not coming out to their meetings with their departments, or their leadership uh, team saying, I'm a Catholic, this is what I think. <laughs> but their faith will actually animate their decisions in such a way that they are actually influencing the secular culture. That's, I think, the vision I would like to have. Greg and Sister, what kind of moral difficulties do you think that no nationwide social distancing creates? Now we're off of the, the document itself, but just to considering a broader question. Well, I'm a little bit worried that we'll get used to it. Um, and, and we are not meant to be socially distant. So we're doing it for health reasons right now. Um, it doesn't feel right when you run into somebody you know on the street and keep several feet from them. I'm glad that I still feel uncomfortable, but I hope <laughs> we never get to a, a situation where that becomes normative, that we're fearful of each other 
as this pandemic passes that we're, we're not able to, uh, to greet each other, to hug each other, to shake hands. I think it really diminishes our, our sense of community and our human uh, interactions to do that. I think we'll lose what it means to be human if we can't socially interact. I'd be interested to see what Sister thinks. So I'm going to look at it from the other point of view, and that is that I think the social distancing is actually helping us to learn how we really are meant to be social beings. I, I do think that in some ways, the, the pandemic itself is helping us to understand how we have so much to learn from each other, you know, yeah. that, that we, we sh should learn from whatever we can learn from those Chinese uh, healthcare professionals who were taking care of the first patients. Um, the healthcare professionals, the physicians in Italy are, are, are giving us information. There was an article that came out just a week ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, I think it's called The Catalyst, um, from Italian physicians in Bergamo saying, this is what you have to learn in the United States. Please take this to heart. So I think in some ways, this is actually helping us to realize how dependent we are in each other, even though we're over an entire planet. But I do think that it's making all of us yearn for social interaction in a, in a greater mm -hmm. way. I think families being home together with the kids because school is closed, some of that is stressful. But there's also another part to it where they're realizing that being together is actually what we're meant to be. <laughs> I hear of neighborhoods where people are having... Um, parties just over the fences. They're not getting within six feet of each other, but they're at least going out into their backyards and talking to each other across mm -hmm. the fences, which they wouldn't have done otherwise because they are all, you know, tied up with their work or with their social media. And, and they're, yeah. they're yearning for a different experience. So well, I think that there are some very positive things to actually learn from this. Yeah, I would like to augment what you just said, sister. I, I've heard the comment made once that we went from a society of front porches to a society of decks in the back. And um, maybe we're gonna be on our front porches. I know in my own neighborhood, I'm seeing people walk that I've never seen before, walk, <laughs> rock the streets, because that's all they can do to get some air and get out of the house. And there's an acknowledgement as they pass each other on the streets and you've seen neighbors that you haven't seen in years out and about, even though we're distanced. And I think this is probably a very good thing and, and, and we'll see some benefit from it. You know, and again, to go back to the spiritual, even the, the prayer life, you know, one priest has been promoting the idea that we spiritually adopt those who are dying alone, that we will pray a divine mercy chaplet intentionally, and that the Lord will take that to somebody who is in a hospital somewhere in the world, or, or even at home somewhere in the world, dying alone. Um, that's a beautiful reminder of the communion of the saints. And I passed around to a few friends just yesterday, a, uh, a painting of Fra Angelico, a fellow Dominican. And it's a painting, in, in part of the painting is heaven. And in heaven, all the angels and saints are dancing together, holding hands, and several of them are hugging each other. And I just put out the comment, you know, there is no social distancing in heaven. <laughs> this is what we're made for, really. Very good. Sister Excellent. and Greg, one final comment that you would like to leave with listeners. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm contemplating the whole conversation. One thing that strikes me, and it has to do with our whole discussion on rationing and triage and, and how do we make decisions, is first and foremost as doctors, and I was inspired by the writings of uh, Dr. Ed Pellegrino, a, mm. a Catholic physician and philosopher and leader, that if we always remember the best interest of our patient, their physical, psychological, and spiritual good, as we, as we practice healthcare, we will do very well. And at the bottom of that is actually to love our patients, to love those that we care for. That would be the main principle I would like to, to take away from this. So I'm going to add, of course, the little spiritual point to perhaps put something <laughs> on top of that. Um, so I think that for our, our Catholic physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, all of those in healthcare, you know, we talk about practicing at the top of our license and it may be that in the upcoming weeks and even months that we are actually called to perhaps to function even above the top of our licenses because the situation may become so dire. That's possible. Um, I would like to suggest to all of us that we print out 
um, our Holy Father, Pope Francis's talk that he gave yesterday with the Urbi at Urbi blessing and make a little copy and put it in our pockets. And maybe the CMA could actually do this for all of us because it really calls us and reminds us that we don't have to fear that Jesus is with us in the boat, even if it looks like he's asleep and he does care for us. We don't have to say to him, don't you care? Uh, the way the apostles did. He does, and he is with us. And there is something that he is trying to get to us in, in all of this. Um, one line from that, I, I just, if I can just read this off. A Holy Father said, it is the life in the spirit that can redeem, value, and demonstrate how our lives are woven together and sustained by ordinary people, often forgotten people who do not appear in newspaper and magazine headlines, nor on the grand catwalks of the latest show, but who without any doubt are in these very days writing the decisive events of our time. Doctors, nurses, supermarket employees, cleaners, caregivers, providers of transport, law and order forces, volunteers, priests, religious men and women, and so very many others who have understood that no one reaches salvation by themselves. Sister Mary Diana Dreger wow. and physician and Greg Burke, thank you for being with us for this special episode of Dr. Doctor. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.